correctly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. radiocom Welcome to Me and Steve Talk RPGs, a podcast where me and my friend Steve try and help you get the most out of your role-playing game experience. Hey, what's up, folks? Welcome back to Me and Steve. I'm Steve, as usual, and uh, unfortunately only one Steve tonight because the other Steve is feeling under the weather. But we've got a pretty cool show lined up for you, and we'll get into that right after I tell you about our D20 Network Podcast of the Week, which this week is the Court Games family of podcasts, which are all about Legend of the Five Rings. They actually have three podcasts on the network, one called Court Games, one called Fortune and Strife, and one called Crimson Gold Agonies. The first, Court Games, is interviews and talk with designers, talk about the game. I think they also talk some about the card game, and so on and so forth. Now, they have two actual play podcasts, one being Fortune and Strife, the other Crimson Gold Agonies. One is done very much more in an audio drama style, where they take out all, all the table talk, dice rolls, etc. And the other, and they're separate campaigns, but the other is done much more as a kind of demo thing where... They leave in, you know, rules discussion, dice rolls, so you can kind of pick up a little more of how the game is played. So uh, if you're interested in any of those, you can check them out. I'll put links in the show notes. Main website is courtgamespod.com. But yeah, like I said, or, you know, go to D20 Network, click on the podcast tab, scroll down, you'll find those and a lot more great shows there. Anyway, so one of the things uh, Steve and I have been wanting to do is dive a little more into supers games. And uh, to that end, we're kind of going to try and do a little bit of a series here. And to kind of kick this off, we've brought on Michael Serbrook, who is a game designer, writer, who's, well, I guess, do you primarily work in the Prowlers and Paragons family? Is that fair to say? Right now. <laughs> I, uh, I started out, though, in Champions. Okay. And did a lot of work with champions, both on the super. Oddly enough, not a lot of superhero content for champions, but I did mm-hmm. work uh, in well, then the hero system across the genre board. I did do some. I created uh, Cause Five was my first published work, which was actually more anime cyberpunk. I was influenced by all the VHS tapes I watched in the nineties. Of Bubblegum Crisis and Appleseed and Battle Angel and Akira, which technically is superheroic level at times. Uh, and then, Anime especially tends to go that way. Yeah, and then I did uh, I did Ninja Hero, the the fifth edition version of Ninja Hero, which also included superhero level characters, and then uh, did some fantasy content, and then did some third party work for a couple other companies involving uh, Hero System stuff. But I also contributed to Haymaker, which included superhero characters and other material and uh, contributed to Digital Hero. So, I mean, I, I, got, I cut my teeth gaming on superheroes. I played a lot of champions and then uh, more, more accurately Hero System from like 84 to 2010-ish. <laughs> uh, and then... I played a lot of other some other stuff in between, and then recently, I've been 
playing uh, or running, more accurately, running Prowlers and Paragons on several online games using my setting that we're going to talk about, Well of the Worlds, which, as someone described at the most at Genghis Khan a couple of weeks ago, he said, I don't like supers, but this is fantasy supers, and this is really awesome. I really like this idea. Uh, so, in effect, uh, it's not a, I mean, it's a superhero system, and the setting has people with superhuman powers, but it's not a costume supers setting, if that makes okay. sense. No, I think it does. And I, I know there are other games, especially I think, you know, maybe more recently, you know, most people, when you say supers game, yeah, you think cartoons, MCU, DC, whatever. Right. But there's a lot of games out there, be it from uh, Pelgrane's Mutant City Blues to the stuff from Arc Dream, like uh, Godlike, that are super powered individuals, but in very different settings. Yes. Yes. Well of the Worlds is one of the problems we're going to have is I don't want to give away too much about it. Um, it is very much. Well, let's let's settle what it is in a broad stroke. So Well of the Worlds, I found out when we really started to explore because I first created it for champions and I first ran it probably 10 years ago, thereabouts. And if anybody knows champions, it's a, for those who don't, it's a point based system game. A superhero is built on, let's say, three to 400 points, depending on your power level. Some of the stuff you see in the MCU, maybe those are six, 800-point characters. Stuff that you saw in the Netflix shows, those are 300-point characters. Gives you an idea of street level to cosmic level. It is a massively flexible system. It You can do just about anything you want in it. I spent a lot of time creating characters based on popular IP. I first started out by converting all the manga I was reading because nobody had ever heard of it. And I thought, here, let me show you this cool character. And then I, w- I might watch, what was it, The Good, The Bad, The Weird or The Mummy and be like, here's Brendan Fraser uh, as Rick O'Connell with everything he can do that you see him do in the show. Here is all, you know, all these characters. But that flexibility is also one of its big drawbacks. You can get really caught up in minutia and numbers and stats and, you know, everything is just point, point, point. You have to buy everything. Uh, and if you don't buy it, you can't do it. Uh, so it has a bit of a limit. But it was massively popular in the 80s. Let's let's get this straight. When it came out, it was a huge game changer. I mean, it influenced GURPS. It influenced a number of other systems. I don't remember all of them. But a number, of, especially point-by systems and such, and the way you did it, it was hugely influential. Problem is, it didn't change with the times, and I'm serious. It it it's sixth edition made things even more crunchy, more granular, and there and then they did something called Champions Now, which I didn't. I tried to read the book and gave up very quickly, and I think it just came and went, and it didn't really change anything. But it was huge, and I really enjoyed playing it and running it and and being in a Champions Era system game. But all things must pass. But I originally ran the game. In Champions, and people started out, I said, you build a normal person. I want a normal, everyday guy from the world around us. And I ended up with a character that was 10 points and some guy that was 120 points. And I was like, okay, you also have to have a secret dream or wish or desire. And one player knew exactly where I was going. And he said, in my dreams, I fly. And another character said, well, I wish the world was like my sketchbook. I could erase it and start over and so on. And... I took that, and basically every session, they got a new character sheet. 
and every and the character sheet would have new abilities, new, new their stats would go up. They might have new skills and superpowers. And by the end of the game, some of these guys were five hundred point characters who could stop time because they wanted life to be like their their character, their sketchbook. They could stop something and and start over. So something bad that happens, they could reverse that. And so they were had superhuman powers. They could fly at super speeds. They could lift great weights. They were jump great distances. They were, you know, powerful hand-to-hand combat combatants and all that. But they didn't have costumes. They didn't have superhero names. They were, in the parlance of the setting, wonder workers, which meant they were akin to culture heroes. Um, they were like Hercules or Gilgamesh or Kuklian or Hiawatha or characters whose names I'm never going to remember, but I can think of like, you know, the guy in Japan that actually, realistically, they believe he actually sank a boat with an arrow, got a really lucky shot in a weak plank, and then it it drifted with the waves and the broken plank went down and the water came in and he sank it. But he apparently, as far as can be told, he really did that. So those kind of characters is what we're talking about. People who can, who are looked upon as not superheroes, but People, like I said, culture heroes or demigods or something like that. Almost um, high-level folk heroes in a way. If very a, much. Very a, much. A future lens, I guess, is a way to say it. Right. I mean, one of my hero products, which was almost superheroes, was called Larger Than Life, in which I gave you champion stats for Paul Bunyan and Joe Magarats and John Henry. And, and those guys are practically superheroes. So, yeah, they are culture or folk heroes doing the crazy stuff. So it turns out that what I had created, and before I knew, I'd ever heard of the term, is an isekai game, which is the Japanese genre of alternate or other world adventure, which I know barely, I've like looked at almost none of it. I know Sword Art Online and Overlord and a slew of other titles and, and both anime and manga use that premise often of people getting sucked into the game world that they're playing, the MMO, where you find out I'm no longer playing World of Warcraft, I'm in it. So I was inspired by an anime called El Hazard, which is probably one of the very first of those, which in turn admitted they were inspired by John Carter of Mars. Mm-hmm. So it sounds vaguely like... Um... Joel Rosenberg's Guardians of the Flame series in a way, too. I've never even heard of that. <laughs> the three things that heavily influenced me were El Hazard, Don, John DeChancey's Castle Perilous novels, and Philip Jose's Farmer's World of Tears, all of which involve in the West what we call portal fantasy, which is John Carter, which is also known as Sword and Planet, or Planetary Romance, our Chronicles of Narnia, Doomfarers of Coromundae, the Lego movie when you get right down to it because <laughs> Emmett gets hauled into all these other worlds and discovers he's got great power. So that is what the well is. The well is people, if you use the this core plot setup, is people from Earth, our Earth, or the, so they may think, end up in a world, an alternate world, and soon slowly discover they have powers and they need to, and what do they do with those powers? And that's sort of the question. Now, there's a meta plot that I'm using. I'm running three online games, all using the same plot. It's basically me. Like one guy said, you know, oh, I've run Curse of Strahd 19 times. I'm like, well, that's what I'm doing. I'm taking this story plot that I that originally ran face-to-face for my hero group, and I ran it again for my for a PMP group to get a feel for PMP. And I said, okay, I want to take a step up, and I ran it online, ran a complete game. And now I'm running three other groups, including a Twitch show, 
uh, through this same campaign, which is great because every time something somebody runs through it, I can add more detail. And eventually I want to take what I what I have and create a source book that you can run players through this beginning to end covers everything you need to know campaign uh, called Against the Masters of the World. Because it turns out that this paradise paradise-like world that you're in has some dark secrets. And of course, you being the people with powers, or you being the protagonist, you're the PCs, things will happen to you and you're drawn into a major conflict, which will determine the fate of the world. Cool. Sounds very interesting. So let's take a, a little bit of a step back here. And sure. I'm not personally familiar with Prowlers and Paragons, other than I've seen a decent amount of talk about it. Okay. But I, I really don't know much about the game system itself. Or, or any of that other than I, I've seen a couple character sheets and it appears to use some form of a dice pool. It does. It's a dice. It's like, um, I mean, the only other game that I've actually played, well, I've played a couple of dice pool games now that I think about it. Uh, Iron Claw is a dice pool game. If you've never played it, the dice, it's like, it's like Savage Worlds. You have four to 20 and you grab every single die that applies to what you're doing and you roll it, and you count, and successes are four or better, and you count your successes, and it's, once again, it's opposed successes are you rolling against a target number. Shadowrun does the same thing. Free League's engine is similar. Uh, yeah, Savage Worlds does it on a very small scale. What PMP does is everything is a, is a dice pool. Your stats, your skills, your powers are all expressed by a dice pool. And so uh, it's, a, it's a versus system. I roll my dice, you roll your dice, you determine your successes. You can play it binary, most successes win, okay? Or you can play it more narrative, which is the more successes you have, the more control you have over the narrative. Now, the one thing I stress at times when I'm running the game is I say, look, your target number was three, you got a six, you got three more successes than you needed, you have total control of the narrative, what did you do? That's very much like Matt Mercer's, you know, how do you want to do this? But, but I, I can apply it to any action you do, and I can't can't negate it. Now, I may say you only made it by one. The narrative is yours, but I can add something to it. I can't mm -hmm. take it away from you, but I can add another element. And a classic example is um, sort of like that scene from the first Matrix movie. Everybody's leaping across the uh, rooftops chasing Trinity. And if this was a PMP game, um, Trinity may leap. And I say, look, it's a T target number of three. Roll your agility to, to jump. And it's like, I got a, I got four successes. Well, you got one more and you need it. So you made the jump. But now the roof is crumbling and that agent is right behind you. So I can't take what you do away, but I can add that. Now, I will note that personally, I try not to do that a whole lot because if it's a one-on-one -on -one game, that would be awesome. We'd constantly be back and forth. And we'd be building narrative back and forth and adding elements and playing off of them. But in a six-player game, I'm not going to do that. I mean, now, if I, I won't do that all the time. If a player does something, uh, like in the last game that I ran, a character saw a cute little what we call scavenger birds. It looked like, a, it looked like somebody took a mouse and gave it furry with wyvern wings. And it's walking around like a wyvern did in The Hobbit. And she's like, I want to I wanna, I wanna entice it. And I said, give me a charm roll. And I said, you know, I said in my head, like a difficulty of like two or three, because it's a wild animal. She gets six. And I was like, oh, you know what? 
tell me how you entice this into my hand, into your hand. And she like, you know, and now she has a sidekick. I mean, I'm going to tell her you can put points into having a sidekick for Jack, the scavenger bird. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, somebody may in, in a fight, I'm not going to do that. I'm like, no, you missed, you hit whatever. I'm not going to drag that. I'm not going to slow everything down by, by trying to play that game. Mm-hmm. If you were doing a one-on-one game and you really wanted to simulate, say, a martial arts scene like the fencing that you see in Princess Bride or any Chinese or, or Japanese sword or martial arts movie, you could actually do that. You know, well, you, you know, you, you hit, you got one over his evasion. So you did hit him and did a point of damage, but you know, and I could, you could, you could play it that way. Uh, and Len himself in the book says, look, you can either play with the narrative element or you can play it binary. It's really up to how the GM feels. So now are the, when you're talking about this, like combat or whatever, is it are are they opposed roles, so to speak, where the GM yes. has the pool for the NPC or whatever, and so the player is trying to beat the number of successes that you as the GM roll? Yes. For example, uh, let's be generic about. Well, let's say um, I don't know. Superman is fighting Wonder Woman. I don't know why. So Superman is going to use his might. Now he's a cosmic level guy. He's rolling like 25 dice of might. Uh, Wonder Woman is going to use whatever her best defense is. It could be agility. It could be her armor defined as her bracers. It could be pure toughness. It could be martial arts. She is much more martially inclined than he is. They still do the same amount of damage, just slightly different ways of doing it. And so, you know, he declares, I roll this I get this many successes. I look at my best defense. I roll those dice. I get that many successes and we compare. Now it's, this makes it very fast play. Unlike say champions, champions was I rolled a hit. I roll my damage. Did I succeed your defenses, which you have to subtract from and blah, you know, like that. And if you were doing more realistic, it was, I rolled a hit. Did your armor activate? Did, you know, so there could be three or four dice rolls. And I know Shadowrun was like that. I roll, I soak or I roll my defenses and I roll to soak, you know, there was a couple ways and here it's one-on-one boom. I roll, you roll. Uh, now you can modify those roles. Both of us have a currency players have resolve. I have adversity that they can use to modify the roles if they have it. And if they want to use it, you can re-roll, you can add dice, you can explode dice if possible. So it's not fully static and there's maneuvers you can do. You can, you can, it's not just, it's not like, old school D and D, which was, I roll, you roll, I roll, you roll. And it was, you know, there was, it was just, you know, I want to do this. Well, that's, that's presumed in your, in your attack role that you're doing something fancy. You can try to do different uh, maneuvers and techniques, not a whole lot, not like champions that had a huge list, but champions once again is way more granular in in how it does damage in combat. But uh, I think it works well enough. It's, it's a lot quicker and it's a lot simpler. And once you get a ha- get the hang of it, boom, go. You, you can. I've run big fights in the two to three to four hour sessions that I do online. In one session, that would have taken an immense amount of time. In Champion, now I'm. I don't know about in some masterminds or certain other super systems, but I know it would take an immense amount of time in some of the systems that I know because it's a lot more streamlined and smoother. And that's one thing I really like about it. Mm-hmm. You see, my in in let's call it traditional supers play. My only experience is a couple sessions of mutants and masterminds. Right, I was very fortunate in that the GM that I played with knows the system frontwards, backwards, upside down, sideways, 
and literally like on on the pre-gen sheets he's giving us it has all the different things statted out so he's just like roll add this what's your number okay that's this many you know like the guy is is virtually a, a human calculator when it comes to mutants and masterminds right and i know my convention game sheets for pmp i try to have everything figured out noted what it is that you're rolling and, and what it means because any supers game i mean everybody a lot of people want rules light and i know there's some extreme rules light supers games out there but i personally think that because supers incorporates fantasy and science fiction and you know weird science and psychics and aliens and all this and all these powers that you can do you need it there's a certain level of crunch that's going to be in there because you have to make sure all this works together Mm-hmm. GURPS, Mutants and Master, GURPS Supers, Mutants and Masterminds, Hero, even Savage Worlds, PMP, whatever you're playing, you have to deal with the fact that somebody can throw a shield, somebody can throw a hammer with lightning, somebody can be throwing hex bolts, somebody can be shooting arrows, somebody can be shooting a gun, somebody can be fighting with fists and, and hands, and somebody can be moving at a thousand miles an hour, and you have to make all that work. So the really crazy super, like, rules light super systems out there i think i i don't know there's icons and bash and uh, all these other ones i don't know how rule, rules light some of those are but some of them when they talk start talking about how minimalistic they are i don't know how well they're going to work and i don't know how well they work for long games so i really like so i've really come to find that pmp though works very well for me and i should note that somebody may be a huge icons or bash or gurp supers fan and i'm like great if it works for you it was not working for me but this system does well, and I think that's, to me, that's one of the beauties of the, the modern gaming environment that we're living in is that there are games out there. If you prefer rules light, if you want to go crunchier, if you want somewhere in the middle that, you know, there are titles out there so we can all find a game that works for us. Right. I know some people have turned away from mutants because they like that what you're talking about, the modifiers and the crunch, and they're like, no, that's it gets to be too much. And they're looking at PMP and saying that it gives me just enough crunch that but also gives me fast play. I mean, let me give you another example about why I like PMP. If we're playing D D or Pathfinder or Champions and we get into a fight, we get into we get into the equivalent of Captain America in the elevator fight scene in Winter Soldier. In Champions D&D, Savage World, I don't know about Savage Worlds, but D&D, Pathfinder, um, probably Mutants and Masterminds, I don't know. I mean, I mean, but those three, every single one of those guys is a character sheet or at least a stat block. They all have, they all are, they all have hit points or, or body or stun or whatever, and they have to be fought individually. You cannot make like the thing and just scoop up a bunch of goblins in D&D and give them a crushing hug and throw them aside. You have to fight them one on one. With PMP, everybody except for the guy that cross, becomes crossbones is a minion. So they're a group represented by a single die roll. There are okay. dice. So when that fight starts, I could I could tell you like I could tell you how some of that might go as a PMP GM. I could say like, well, if the, if it, if there are a bunch of minions, how do they get his his hand magnetized to the wall? And I'm like, oh, yeah, because the GM inflicted a misfortune. He goes, yeah, you're, you know, they got a magnet on you. Now you're, you're, I've inflicted a misfortune that's making, meaning you only fight with one hand and you can't use this ability. But he still can use his martial arts to fight all of those minions at once. And he takes out so many in such a short period of time because his 
dice pool versus their dice pool, he's taken out one enemy for every success he gets. So in one die roll, he may take three or four guys down, which is I kick him, I slam him into the him, I grab this other guy and throw him into him, and next thing you know, the bunch of them are laying down on the ground. And then, you know, he does this and he does this, and, and then he fights a super minion or super mook, which is Crossbones, who doesn't have a full character sheet yet, but he's got a, he's got multiple dice pools. He's got like an attack and a defense one, and he still puts them down pretty quick because this is Captain America. But I can run fights like that where you fight an army and I can say, well, there's about 10 groups of 50. And then there's five guys who are foes and there's one villain. And it becomes just, I mean, everybody has the same stat block except for the villain. And I'm just marking off like circles as I go. And I'm like, okay, so you just, you you know, you were doing, you know, I, I think Captain America, because he, he fights minions or mobs a lot, where he dives into a bunch of them, or even uh, Black Widow jumps in a bunch of guys, and next thing you know, half of them are down on the ground, and they can't touch her because she's moving too quick and, and such. The other thing I like about this is that the minion rule means they can't, you can't hurt Superman. So in Champions, I, you know, I want to be completely bulletproof. You would have to have ridiculous defenses. Uh, because of the stun lotto and modifier and some other elements. In this one, it's like, well, I have 20, 24 dice of armor. Well, guess what? These guys are threat level six. They're not even close to half your armor. They can't touch you no matter what weaponry they have. And the idea being is 20 guys with 9mm handguns are not nowhere near, uh, do not do any more damage than one guy with a 9mm handgun. So you can do the, I walk through a hail of bullets um, or arrows or such, and just have them bounce off of you because the idea of what they, what they call, you know, rank or dice level or, you know, the uh, threat level is built in to determine how combat works, which is another way that makes things are awesome. I ran a game recently where the guy has like 10 dice of armor. And I said, I said, Don Morgan, your character, whenever the minions come around you, you're immune. They can't hurt you. They may shoot at you or throw arrows or stones or whatever, but they can't hurt you because their threat level is less than half of your ability. Now, the fun part is minions do not stop. You can make 12 die minions. That would be, let's fight all of those Ultron clones at the end of Ultron. I get, I get 14 successes. I took out two. I threw my shield at two guys and I took out two or, you know, whatever. But you can see now how you can keep scaling that up. And so after a while, yeah, Doom, there's a, there's a dozen Doom bots. They could be minions, especially, you know, the joke is, is if Doom's not even there, they're minions. If Doom's there, then there may be foes. And foes can have full stat blocks, but half health. And super mooks can be like just a couple of dice pools. I realize we've gone on a tangent and, and, and you may be a little lost, but the idea being the dice pool mechanic makes it very simple to run big battles with a, with all sorts of people because you don't have to worry about a dozen character sheets. I can actually have most everything on one care, including vehicles on one sheet of paper and just mm -hmm. track what they're doing and how they're affecting them because I don't need those big champions or GURPS or D&D character sheets that show all these different abilities. And no, it's all streamlined down to the one thing. Well, it sounds like part of what's going on to me is that, uh, how do I want to say this? It's like, it's, it's very flexible in that situationally you can adjust what, you know, like we'll just say aim agents, right? 
if you need them to be there and be a nuisance, you set them here as, you know, one big group of whatever. But depending on what you want them to do, you can elevate them to be more dangerous aim agents, less dangerous aim agents, etc., without having to grab a whole new stat block. Right. With when you're dealing, okay, so like I said, minions are one value. Um, it's their threat, and you use that for everything. So, for example, I'm trying to think here. One is normal. Two is like three is trained. Four is professional. Six is pushing superhuman. So, for example, um, top end Hydra agents in the MCU with heavy body armor and energy weapons and 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 such like that would be would be levels D six or six die threat. Um, but if Iron Man has 12 dice of armor or 14 dice of armor, they can't hurt him because he has more than twice their threat. Now, they can still damage people because, except for Iron Man because he's got all that armor and, and it's passive, so he's, he's wearing armor. Because the more of them together, they are together that attack one hero, they get an, a, a, a gang-up bonus because okay. more weapons are coming at you. So this is where the trade-off comes, or this is where the rule comes, though, that if their base threat is less than half of your passive armor, then they can't hurt you because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter how many guns are pointed at Superman. If they're not carrying Superman level weaponry, they're not gonna hurt them. Okay. And then I can say, hey, these guys, these guys over here have high-end, let's hurt Iron Man weaponry. And I can build them as really super mooks. Or I can say they're kind of fragile on the defense, but they're really heavy on offense. And I give them like 12 die blast. That's their power, but six die toughness. That's their defense. So if they tag Iron Man, they can knock him around. But if he fires a repulsor ray, he'll probably put him right out because they're still only normal people. But you can do this. This is how you do like some of the sequences you see in certain anime where you're like, these guys all have armor, like heavy armor, but they fall down in droves to the hero. Yeah, because they're just minions. And even though they're heavily armored, it's for show, air quote show here. And so you get that, like, why does anybody wear armor in Game of Thrones if the hero just carves right through them? Because they're minions and he's the hero and he has the ability to just, you know, wipe them out. Uh, the other cool thing, though, is that that threat is against anything you do against him. If you throw an entangle, if you're Spider-Man and your ensnare, your webbing, does more than their threat, they're they're webbed to the wall and to the end of this end of the action scene. If you have mind control, you can mind control a bunch of them. Um, so it's the great thing is is that unlike champions, it was horrible. I wanted mind control that agent, and it just took forever to do it, seemingly do anything to not, no. You can grab like ten or twelve guys and be like, you know, do do my bidding. And I recently had a, a combat where it was like. Guy throws an ens an entangle grenade or a ensna webbing grenade or whatever. Ensnare is the power called in PMP. And I was like, oh, well, you just took out five guys and they're not going anywhere. Because mm -hmm. you did you did more than their threat and they're out to the end of the scene. And I thought that was awesome. So what I'm kind of hearing is that PMP is really designed for the big, bold brushstrokes of cinematic action. Is that fair? Or that is it's good at that? It is designed, well, okay, the core rules are designed around what I would call four-color action. Nobody dies unless unless you, you know, really plot it out. So it's more designed for classic comic books. The MCU, the DCU, most superhero shows involve a level of death 
and injury that go beyond what PMP normally does. Now, PMP has gritty rules. If you want to play the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or you want to play Punisher or that sort of thing, you can. Um, there's rules for like death and dying and what is it, firing into melee and and this this kind of a thing where it's not it's a little bit more gritty. But yeah, PMP is really good at that sort of cinematic uh, action. And I say cinematic, we should say your classic comics, your classic uh, animated DC animated, Marvel animated shows, uh, Batman Beyond or Batman, the animated series, that kind of thing, are some of the MCU and DCU where, you you know, because we've been talking a lot about minions, but heroes versus villains is slightly different. They can have all the same. They can have a full suite of powers. They can have full suite of abilities. They can have full health and I can have adversity and everything. And so that turns into more of your classic one-on-one battling of superpower versus superpower and such. I was sort of talking a lot about minions because that's one thing I'm enamored with. I don't have to be afraid of having a bunch of agents in the field along with some villains or, or, or such because it's very easy to run them all run all that together as compared to some other when I was running champions it would be a nightmare. I mean, mm-hmm. I could do it, but I wouldn't want to do it online. Well, but like I guess what I'm what I'm hearing you describe is like so to speak you can have that panel where, you know, Cap throws the shield, knocks out 17 guys and then has a five-page knockdown drag out with exactly. the villain and exactly. without yeah. having to stat out all kinds of crazy stuff. Right, right, right. And there are powers in the book that allow you to do, to be the guy that whose job is to destroy minions. Um, there's one called Two-Fisted, which can be, it's the shadow with a gun in each hand. It's Wolverine with his claws. It's um, Cap throwing a shield, maybe, although I think he has that. It's... Uh, Black Widow or Batman has it where they dive into a bunch of guys and there's a flurry of blows and next thing you know, half of them are out on the ground. And there's so there's rules for that that actually make you an even better destroyer of AIM agents or Hydra agents or Cobra agents or Viper agents or whoever. Um, so there's that. And then there's other powers like, oh, by the way, every effect powers knock out twice as many agents, you know, per success and things. So, yeah. And then when you're fighting one-on-one, the use of resolve and adversity and some other elements may make this fight go on. I actually told a guy in the last big battle I ran, he got into a fight with a villain that was a our foe that was about his power level, a little bit tougher mainly because and all that. And they fought without really hurting each other because they were mainly grappling. But it was, I thought it was amazing. It was six, pages and a page is a turn of combat of them standing in a fire pit with flames and smoke and ash all around them trying to want you know get one down and slam them into the ground and everybody else is battling around them and and, and defending and attacking all the uh, all the other and foes and minions and characters and these two were, are doing going at it and i said and it was amazing because they were so close and that our die rolls kept getting so close they couldn't get one finally you know and it was it was cinematic amazing like you said it was a five page fight scene between captain america and batrock the leaper or batman and i'm trying to think of like deathstroke um mm-hmm. type deal uh and he tied that guy up he kept that guy 
from trouncing any of his fellows who probably were not able to deal with this guy the way he could. It was amazing. Yeah. Well, but I like that because it, it, I don't know. It it just seems like it works really well. It does. But to go back and to me, you, you've kind of touched on this a little bit. So, but what I'm hearing you say is that PNP also does very well with like the different levels, because even if we're talking, you know, quote unquote, four color comic book supers, you know, you've got everything from the agents of shield, you know, you mentioned like the Netflix or the CW shows up to the MCU, DC or Superman, you know, Avengers. And as someone who's a fan of games, but not, I wouldn't consider myself a game designer by any right. It seems that supers, because you have this vast disparity of power levels that supers games must create a rather unique challenge for a designer to be able to accommodate all of that and make it all interesting. So this is how PMP does it. And this is something I find very brilliant. So PMP has two things that you look at when you decide on your campaign. The first is your point total, which determines your dice cap. So for the game that I'm running on Twitch, we've had one session. Everybody's really excited. I said, you're building a 50-point character with a six-die cap. What that means is you have 50 points to build your character. No powers unless you want. I mean, no superpowers. You could have martial arts. You could speak multiple languages and things. And you have a six-die cap. Nothing you have can go over six dice. That would be any of your abilities. That would be any of your skills or anything else that you can do. And if nothing that you have reaches six dice, you get automatically get something called resolve because you're less powered than the dice cap. Now, because everybody's making normal humans, pretty much everybody had a few dice. I joked with one guy. I said, you're going to be everybody's friend. You actually have eight resolve, which is the max you can have because he didn't know what to spend points on. And I said, that's fine. I'll take those points you haven't spent and apply them to your milestone when you power up. And you'll have more points to plug into that. And one guy admits he's a munchkin and he practices um, mat cutting, which is the Japanese art of cutting mats. And so he actually hits the dice gap and doesn't have any resolve. So how that applies when you level up is you go 6, 8, 10, 12, 18, 25 dice. But because Superman is at maxed out he's 25 dice of might and armor and all this other stuff batman can compete with him because batman goes look i have maybe 12 to 18 dice and anything i can do and you're at 24 or 25 you're at the max i'm six or eight dice below you i get two resolve for every die below you so when len made the justice league he has 36 resolve he has poker chip piles of resolve and Superman has like one because he gets, he gets something called determination, which means he always gets one resolve. Mm-hmm. As a, we won't go into how to earn resolve. It's this is a simple part, but what this means is that Batman is like, I can't punch the guy Superman can punch. I can't run as fast as, as flash. I can't fight with a sword like wonder woman can. I can't shoot arrows like green arrow, but I can, use all of this resolve to boost what they're doing, to allow them a re-rolls, to get lucky breaks and no things, to boost my own die rolls, to add to my dice, to add to their dice, because he can be kind of like battlefield commander in that. And therefore he can compete on a level with them. And also 
he can use his dice to power some of his powers, like preparation. I'm sorry, resolve to power some of his powers. So he goes, I'm going to spend a resolve. And you know what? I'm prepared. I've researched Starro. I know that we need this thing that I just so happen to have in my utility belt. It's, it's a, it, you see this to, to a silly degree in the, the old TV show, but in a more serious game, you know, he can say, or the player can say, I'm going to spend a resolve to, you know, do this or power that or activate this power. And he has mountains of it. So he mm-hmm. can really, he can buff in a way or benefit everybody around him and therefore compete with them in the same fight, in the same scene because he has all of that resolve. And when Wonder Woman or Superman runs out, only have, they only have a few due to their flaws and due to determination. He can, he can basically back them up and say, well, I, I, you know, I, here, I've still got... And so he is very relevant to the game, even though he can't deliver the same amount of damage or dice in an attack that they can. I don't know, kind of akin to like Hawkeye running with the Avengers. Well, yeah, he's now the funny thing is, is I would say Hawkeye's arrow skill is ridiculous because remember, he just didn't look and shot an arrow into the air and and sure, Loki catches it and it still blows up. So his offensive skill is really high. Defense is not so much, but he's got he's but he makes like he and Black Widow made up for it by saying, look, I've got lots of points left over. I'm just going to buy determination because I, you know, because that's what allows me to keep up with the guys who are true superhumans. Okay. You can get resolve, even if you start out with zero resolve, you can get resolve through, you know, a cool plan, really cool role play, you know, uh, vignette scenes. You can do a little scene maybe to to illustrate something about your character. Flaws can give you resolve. Superman has one because he certainly has, he has Lois Lane out there. He has Lex Luthor out there. So he should have at least two just because of that. You know, there's ways that you can always start with a little bit of resolve. Enemies, I think it's called relationship. You have to try to remember for what it is. And then you can also earn resolve by taking flaws that when you use them once per scene and they cause a problem, you get a resolve for that. The thing being super heavy, for example, he could say, or having unluck or something like that. You know, you could say, well, I, I'm really heavy and I fall through the floor and make a really bad, you know, literally make a bad first impression. I'm like, well, here's a resolve for playing up the fact that you're the thing and feel you're a monster. And every time you do something normal, something breaks. But you can then use that, you know, to do something cool later on. Okay. No, I like that. That So, yeah, it, it, it lets lower-powered characters still play on the same level as as higher powered characters which sounds yeah yeah so for example if i don't know you bring in daredevil from the the netflix show he's maybe eight dice maybe ten but you pair him up with the avengers where you've got guys who are probably throwing 12 minimum of 12 and probably pushing 18 to 24 dice you know, the player's like, well, how do I compete? I'm like, well, here's your mountain of resolve that you can use to augment everything you do. And I've had that in a Well of the Worlds game where I've had somebody come in midway through the game to replace somebody who's left, and they get the same 50-point starting character as everybody else. And I'm like, well, everybody else, you're at six dice. Everybody else is at 10 or 12. You know, so here's your six or eight resolve that you're going to start with that you can use to help them or maybe, you know, augment whatever you do. 
And even if there's not a fight, they can they can use that for various things. And they're like, okay, so I'm, I may not have all the powers they do, but I have a huge resource of dice manipulation chips and lucky break chips and and things that I can use to be uh, useful this session. And then usually I power them up pretty quickly, and that and that most of that'll go away. But they don't care now; they got superpowers. Mm-hmm. So now when, when we keep talking about the, our, I'm assuming these are like D6 in these dice pools. Yes. Okay. And you're just looking to like, you're counting four plus or five plus or <laughs> does that depend on the situation? Well, Len originally, Ren, Len has you count evens two, four, six. Okay. Uh, but as I've told people, I don't care how you count them because some people are used to like Shadowrun and miniatures games and they go, can I just count four, fives and sixes? I'm like, whatever. The rule is three results have to be zero, two results are one, and one result is two, and you just have to be consistent. Now, I have P&P dice that have three blank sides, two silver sides, and a gold side. So I just roll that, and I count those successes, and I know that the gold is two successes, and I can tell you a value pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a very simple dice build system. Okay. Oh, that sounds Actually, that sounds really cool. I may have to try this out at some point because... It sounds like, like you're saying, it's got enough crunch that you don't feel that kind of wishy-washiness of, of something like maybe um, oh, the Powered by the Apocalypse one about teens, masks. Yeah. Um, which, again, I don't know that it's really about supers. That's just the skin they put on the teen angst story they want to tell. Yeah. I, I, isn't, isn't art something also from them where you play like monsters or something. Oh, monster hearts. Huh? Uh, monster hearts. I think that's, I think they're both magpie. I'm not sure. Yeah. I know. Um, the only PTA or power P P blah, 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 powered by the apocalypse game I've ever played was a couple sessions of Threadbare at Gen- at Genghis Khan, uh, which was a lot of fun, but it's also very much your relate. It's all heavily relationship based. It's, mm-hmm. you know, the person across from you next to you, which doesn't work. For example, it wouldn't work for a well game because everybody could be strangers. You know, mm-hmm. in my Twitch game, two people know each other. Nobody else knows anybody except for, you know, so there's two people who are to, who were together on the flight and everybody else is their own person. So any of those games where you're supposed to start out with a pre- previous history and you have linkage to each other, I'm like, that doesn't work. And it doesn't, you know, that, that the game, we don't start that way. That may build over time. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I know having played Threadbare, it's a different take on how that works. I mean, the relationships is what let you accomplish things more than your own raw ability. Usually. Yeah. The only Powered by the Apocalypse I've gotten a chance to play thus far is um, Monster of the Week, mm-hmm. which uh, we're currently actually, we recorded that that game and uh, we're in the midst of, of broadcasting it, releasing it. But uh I had a lot of fun with it, but yeah, it is, it is a, I wouldn't even call it a game system so much as a framework, but it, it seems to work best when it, it has a fairly tight focus, which I think, and especially if you go back, you know, like we were talking a little bit, I think even before we turned the mics on, you know, and recorded things that, you know, some of the, this, these games that came out in the eighties and the nineties were much more, here's a bunch of rules, do your own thing with it. Yeah, where that's that's the problem I think that champions or hero system always had to overcome was it was a gamer's design it was a game toolkit that you could use to build whatever you want 
So it didn't have a tight focus. It had some settings, but it never had really never had really good plug and play settings. And as far as I can tell, powered by the apocalypse games are very tightly focused on one thing. The impression that I've heard from some people, they're really good for short games, not I don't know about campaigns, but they're really good for doing whatever they're doing. Like Threadbear is your animal, your toys in the your basically sentient walking talking toys in a post-apocalyptic future where none of the people are exist anymore. So, you know, I, the one game I was in, I was a bag of army men <laughs> and, the, and the GM was great. He had props. So he puts a bag of army men in front, little plastic army men. So immediately I turned into, you know, R. Emery, uh, Arlie Emery. Yeah. I turned into Ar, Ar, Arlie Emery from, Arlie from Emery. you know, our, our soldier from TF, TF2. And then the other time he put a big plastic horse out. Now I live in D- the Denver area and I saw that and I immediately became Lucifer. I killed my owner, you know, or my creator, you know, I'm invulnerable. And, you know, so it was, it was a blast with the props, but uh, I mean, there's a number, like, like we've talked about this. There's a number of games where some people have said they're great for one shots. They're great for simulating the genre, but their use in a longer term game becomes less and less viable because they're, their focus is very tight on one thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, but there's, you know, there's a ton of indie games that, that I think they do one thing really well. Um, mm-hmm. I know I played one game of dogs in the vineyard, which does that social interaction mechanic about, you know, uh, enforcing, I'm trying to remember the, like you're supposed to be a team of lawgivers coming to a town, finding the problem, resolving the problem and passing judgment. And yeah. he does that really well. And somebody said, you can take that core mechanic. And he did Dogs of the Water Cooler to do inner office politics or Dogs of the – and it focused basically on the character reactions and politics and, and all that. It, it was not going to be useful at all for any sort of combat game or any sort of you know a conflict that was physical. It was all social. But he said it was great for that. Well, that's the same guy who designed Apocalypse World. That was oh, okay. what he did before that, Vince Baker. But uh, yeah, yeah. But I think to me that's, and again, we touched on this before. I think, you know, I, I, I like flexible toolkit games, but I often, I, I'm kind of one of those people too, where sometimes if, if I've got a concept, I want that game that does the thing that I want to do really well. Right. And, and like you mentioned, the indie market, especially now is exploding with these things where, man, if, if you may have to dig a little but there's a game out there that does that thing you want, or there probably is. Right. And does it very, very well without you having to put in the legwork with, you know, be it a GURPS or a hero system or. Right. Because heroes like GURPS, here's it. So here's my view, my opinion, and the way I look at GURPS and champions, GURPS let you do whatever you wanted to do. But, and this is, I've heard this like the scuttlebutt is, you are stuck with their standardized system for doing what it is you want to do. And for example, their magic system was pretty much no matter which IP source book you picked up, their magic system was always the same. The story I heard is somebody said, Hey, Steve, I figured out how we can use GURPS to simulate the magic system in Goblin World. I don't know. And he goes, that's great, but we're going to use our generic across the board magic system that we establish in GURPS magic. And it was like, okay. But if you noticed like, the cell system for power, the starship hull system and all, it was the same, except for, I think, Traveler. Traveler, they couldn't get away with that. 
And so Traveler, they were like, yeah, we're going to simulate Traveler using GURPS rules. But Traveler, GURPS Traveler was really its own, very its own thing because it was simulate, it was trying to simulate a different game. But whenever they did anything else like GURPS Humanx or anything or high tech or whatever, it was this, it was a generic set of rules that they applied to whatever they were doing. So you could do whatever you wanted, but you had to do it using their preset rules. Champions, on the other hand, or here's system was, well, you can do whatever you want. You have to figure out how to build it within the rules that we have, which could lead to some really like huge blocks of text describing how a power works. And so with both of those, you have to like, you know, get your hands really dirty, understand the mechanics, understand the rules, or use a lot of pre-built stuff from products where, here, we made all these powers for you, just plug them in. Now with PMP, what I have found is, first of all, the powers are much more broad stroke. Mm-hmm. What the power gives you with some, mo- and there's some modifiers you can do, lets you do most everything you want to do. You don't have to get into this munitia of this is what it's like. Also, because because it's getting away from like the really detailed gear that GURPS and Hero use, and the really detailed rules and distances and 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 range mods and everything, all that gets you know gets scrapped. You don't have to worry about it. So the game builds are much simpler. Uh, and and what I like is that as a GM, I don't have to worry about points anymore. Whenever I did anything in Hero, everything was point totaled. Weapons, vehicles, villains, beasts, whatever. You know, everything came with a point total because that's how you build. You always, you run down and you, you, you get your points and say, you know, this is what this is. In this case, when I'm building in like an enemy, I don't worry about any of that. I just give them whatever they need and we're done. I don't have to worry about points. I can put in uh, cons and pros that improve or, or degrade a power that makes sense. Uh, and one of the things that I love is I can reach a point where I'm like, I don't know, there's, I don't know how to exactly simulate this power in the rules. Special power. The character <laughs> can do this. And there's a movie out called The Ritual, which I've seen a couple times and I've read the book. And there's a creature in there called Motor, which means mother. And Motor is supposed to be, a, it's this movie's been out for a while, so I'm, uh, it's supposed to be a child of Loki. It's supposed to be one of the Untan. And I'm like, I want to, I want to try building that. That's how I learn is by building things I see. So I'm building it, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. It has a couple of abilities that really, I don't I'm like. I don't have to worry about how to exactly make it work. I can just say, special power, mark a motor, puts its hand on you, and always knows where you are. Special power, blessing a motor, gives you immortality. Boom, I'm done. If you really want, I can give you the character sheet later and be like, that thing's weird. I'm like, sure it is. <laughs> It, but what, that's gaming, right? Huh? That's gaming, right? That, yeah. yeah, I needed to do this. And, and see, to me, that's where it sounds like prowlers and paragons is kind of hitting that sweet spot where you have enough crunch to say, yes, this is better than this, but you also have that freedom to go. This is just weird and cool. And this is how it works. Right. Like technically now the, if somebody could say, well, in champions, you don't have to worry about point totals either i'm like yeah it's something i learned very late but i had produced so much stuff with the idea of 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 eventually maybe seeing print that it it was ingrained in me let's make sure everything the numbers are correct also because i like to put stuff into the haymaker apa and i did not i wanted to make sure that it would pass muster for all the other readers they'd be like you didn't put any point totals on this you know how did you get these numbers 
I, you know, I was like, no, everything's got to, everything's got to fit. Everything's going to match because there's going to be the people to look at it. They're going to go, they're going to point <laughs> and they're going to be like, wait, that, that, that's, I can't use that because you didn't give me, you know, viable numbers to understand what, what its active points are, what its real points, what its total is. So getting away from that was something that made me feel really free. Um, I'm building an atomic monster product right now. And it's great. I don't, I can just sit there and be like, let me put some values down. Let me get the right powers. Let me do this. Yeah, this looks good. And I'm done. I can create, I feel much freer creating uh, things. And this becomes kind of important and well in the worlds because the heroes are really the only characters are on points. Now, whenever they level up or milestone, after play test, I discovered it was very, it's the best way to get them to you know, show their power is look, you certain critical point happens. I give you new character sheets. You have 25 more points and your dice cap went up by two. And then another 25 points and the dice cap goes up. And then eventually the dice cap stops and I give you another 25 points it can use to spread out. And so they start discovering they have superpowers. Everybody else they meet, I don't have to worry about that. I just like, let me give you something that they can do. And boom, good. And And I can just build without a lot of crunch and worry and create things that they can, you know, that are meant to be their opponents. And it's very quick. And on the fly, I can be like, Oh yeah, we're going to get into a fight with those guys. Oh, uh, hold on. They are, mm, you know, they're city guard, they're four die threat. And, you know, let's go, let's roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, you're right. There's there, once you get a hang of how it works and I, I've been, I have a bunch of, character sheets that I've done up that uh that have uh, later on like off this thread if you ever want to if you ever want to sit in on one of these uh not the Twitch show but one of the other two games and see it in action um certainly but uh yeah you, you you've got a really good point there that there's a sweet spot between all the crunching you have to do in GURPS and in Hero and even in D&D cuz trying to figure out the challenge rating of a B, of a monster is 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 it is it is more an art than a science. Like I I, I reach a point when I when, uh, when I'm, where I'm like that's good enough. <laughs> I don't know if it's accurate. That's good enough, man. I'm tired of going back and forth on this. And with this, you know, it's not a perfect. Now, now let me be honest. It's not a perfect system. There are parts where I'm I I know I can see room for improvement. But I think any I think that's perfect. That's true of any system. You can always say that needs to be written clear. Or, you know, there's a power we sh- this power isn't quite work right. That's fine. It proves that the, the I think but when people point that out to, it proves they're interested in the system, that proves they're interested in, in how it works. The PMP they they created a like an errata page on the PMP Discord, which I don't I don't I don't look into it a whole lot. I got so much going on, but apparently it exploded. And I'm like, yeah, I mean there's people going, you know, but it proves that they're playing the game, they're reading the book, and they want to know more. So I think it's I think on one hand it's a good thing. If nobody is commenting on the game, either it's perfect, which is not true, or they're just not that vested that they care deep enough to ask and raise their hand and say, Is this how this is supposed to work? Yeah, well, but I that's that brings, you know, like, yeah, it doesn't work for this scenario you you ran into. And and I remember a couple of things here. One, um, I remember we interviewed Jay Little quite a while ago, who you know designed the uh, Warhammer Third Edition Fantasy Third Edition, did the uh, FFG Star Wars, it's done the two D twenty system for Modiphius, you know, a bunch of different stuff. And he said, you know, no matter how much playtesting you do, and you go, yeah, these are edge cases. He said, when you you take 
your playtesting sample size and then you release it into the wild, that sample size just became a drop in the bucket. Right. And so you are going to have people out there in actual playing that hit these edge cases. And because of the internet, you're going to hear about them. Yeah. And you can't plan for all of them. No, you can't. This is actually, I know one of the big complaints I heard from people about Hero System 6th Edition was the sheer size of the core books. There's a character creation book that's this thick, and there's a character, there's a combat book that's this thick. Now, this is this is all audio, so of course, you can see my fingers, they can't. But we're talking two, four hundred some odd, five hundred, I don't know, huge thick books. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it was Steve Long was trying to write in such a way that he was answering all the questions. And I, and I also think it turned out all it did was make people ask more questions. It did Mm -hmm. not, it was not the one source, you know, this covers all my, all the bases. It's never going to do that. You know, they were two $50 books. It was a hundred bucks, hundred bucks to get into hero 60 edition. If you bought those two books and they're huge and they cover everything. There's tons of examples. There's tons of sample powers. There's tons of explanation about, you know, how powers work and what they do. And it still didn't. There's still people I know that were like, Mr. Long, but what about, you know, and it it just gives you, you know, it's just a headache. I am not the kind of game designer that designs games from scratch. Um, I'm the kind of guy that had like everything I created for Hero was me taking the rules and like, here, let me give you a source book for this. Let me give you a source book for this. Let me give you a source book for this. I mean, I did some some innovative, I guess I would call it innovative, like design of, hey, here's some new limitations or here's a new way of doing things, you know, but I've been playing Hero for a really long time, but I've never been asked to create a game from scratch. I don't know if I could. I don't know if I have that kind of mind, but I can take things, something that somebody else has written up and be like, oh, I can use this to create this. Here, let me show you these creatures or these devices or these characters or this setting I've created. I think that's just as valuable, right? Well, no, no, you I know? think it is. I'm just you saying, know. I'm just saying I don't have quite the same experience of people coming to me going, but I don't understand because uh, fortunately I'm not the rules guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, the other thing I'm reminded of, you know, by this conversation, I was remember I was le- listening to Ken Height and Robin D. Law's podcast and they were talking about playtesting. And I don't exactly remember how they said it, but the, the point was listen to all the feedback you get from your playtesters about what the problems are don't necessarily listen to them on how to fix them. Oh, no, that's very true. That's very true. If I, if I may, you, mm-hmm. um, we were talking about well of the worlds. Um, yes. I'd like to get back to that actually. Is there any question? I mean, I don't think I've, I, I've given you just a taste. Is there, what would be your follow-up question now that I've given you like a brief idea? Is there, you know, or do you want me to just ramble on it? Well, I was going to say when, you know, we're because of the magic of time that is podcasting, we're, Three weeks out from, you had told me you're going to be launching it on Kickstarter. April 4th. When everyone gets to hear this, it'll be approximately at the earliest a week before that. Right. So, you know, what do you want to tell people about it? Because uh, get the word out, that type right. of thing. You mentioned you have the stream where you're you're playing through some of it. Yeah. Uh, so the base idea is, so let me actually illustrate what the well is by describing two, two, the two or three things that influenced me a lot. The first thing that influenced me was an anime called El Hazard and, and it came out in the nineties. And apparently uh, it is one of the first Isekai anime. 
Now, to go back real quick, Isake means other world, alternate world. In the West, we might call it a portal fantasy. And the general idea is characters from location A, which is usually the here and now, get transported to a fantastical world and have to survive. Mm-hmm. In El Hazard, an object is discovered at the school, the high school, where the main characters uh, either teach or, or attend. And it, it is activated and it sucks um, several characters from Earth into another world where they discover it's, you know, this fantastic uh, John Carter-esque world. Uh, well, I shouldn't say John Carter-esque. Um, it's it, because everybody wears clothes for starters. But they are transported into a fantastical world of both high and low technology and and amazing vista. And there's a war going on and they get sucked into a war against this enemy. Uh, and they all have convenient plot powers that let them be part of the narrative. One character can activate machines by touching them and make them work. One character can see through illusions. One character is, once they stop drinking and smoking, like the less they drink and smoke, the stronger they get. Until finally, at a climatic point, they've been imprisoned and denied, I think denied anything but water and discover they are stupidly strong and of course can defeat the stupid strong monster. And then one person, the villain, ends up having like, tactical genius and therefore can command the you know becomes the commander of the enemy and so you over the course of six episodes the fate of the world the universe or this world is decided and and it's it's a fun it's a fun romp it's very pulpish uh has that pulp feel to it it's got beautiful graphics it's got some great characters uh apparently the english dub is actually pretty good and the, the guy who dubbed the english villain has like almost outlaughs the Japanese voice actor when the guy goes in the maniacal fits of laughter. Mm-hmm. So another thing that influenced me was something called, and you're going to notice a theme in a moment, uh, <laughs> was called Castle Perilous. Now, Castle Perilous is a building, a castle that has 144 aspects, which are like doorways to other realms. And it sits out, it sits in a realm all its own, and you can wander into it. One character wanders into it, but he goes down a hallway and he keeps going down a hallway and he's like, shouldn't I have left the building and gotten into the into the parking garage? And he exits into the castle and somebody else comes in through like a window and all this. And after you've been into the castle, which is immense, it is gigantic. You begin to learn, OK, there's some room, some things are steady. You begin to innately understand how to get to important parts. That's where the dining room is. That's where my bedroom is. That's where that is. The rest of the castle shifts. You also begin to discover that you have a talent. One character becomes a super swordsman as long as they're in the castle. One character becomes a magician as long as they're in the castle. One character, you know, blah, blah, blah. They all gain powers. And there's eight novels and and they go to other realms and the castle gets invaded a couple of times and all this stuff goes on. They're all out of print. Um, I used to have them on my Kindle and then my Kindle died. So I don't know if I'm ever going to get another Kindle. Um, But they're pretty cool. Now, the third one was World of Tears. Philip is a farmer wrote five, six novels set around the idea that there are these lords and ladies, capital L, who all inhabit their own private cosmoses or realms. And within those realms, they do whatever they want. Um, and it turns out Earth is just another one. We are and we are in an artificial world. We are not, you know, what we think is deep space isn't, you know, everything was planned and built for us. Um, so we no one knows where the original evolved universe is. Uh, and our hero, 
in the first novel, um, I think it's called Maker of Universes, wanders through a gate into a world where he becomes young, he becomes strong, he becomes healthy, and he realizes he's on a very artificial world. It's basically a flat plate that rises up as you go. And so each tier is a separate uh, environment and culture and society and so on. And then he eventually discovers why, you know, all these things about the world and such. He doesn't gain superpowers so much, but the artificial constructed world is fascinating. The first book is actually pretty cool. It's a great pulp adventure. I think they all go downhill pretty quick after that. I think the the castle, there's like a couple of sequels to El Hazard, and there's a TV show. The original is really good. The rest of them, not so much. The novels for Castle Perilous vary. I think some, they're all, they're all reasonably good. And then there's a ton of other stuff out there that I've, that I've looked at that also has some, in some cases you gain powers. In some cases you're just running around this alternate world, like John Carter, Almerick by Robert E. Howard, which is terrible, but it was his foray into that same sort of storytelling. The Doom Fair is a Coromunday, which is a M113 from Vietnam wanders and gets sucked from Vietnam into a fantasy world. So you get to see guys with M16s and, and 50 caliber machine guns and white phosphorus fight a dragon. Um, and then uh, I don't, I'd have to open up the file. There's a file I could list off this huge collection. Um, actually the most recent Stephen King fairy tale is very much the same sort of thing. So the idea being is that our heroes, our characters are normal people from the here and now who in the game that I've been running, get on a flight to Bermuda because the, one of the taglines is this is where the Bermuda triangle ends. And they're on Oceanic Airlines Flight 907, which is a gag because Oceanic Airlines is the airline that you use uh, whenever a plane crashes and no airline wants to be associated with that plane crash. It's the, it's the airline from Lost and a couple other shows. Um, and I forget 907. I, I don't remember if that was from an, a show or not. But anyways, so they encounter turbulence. They wake up. They're in a wreck. There's only the five or six characters. They don't know where anybody else went. There's Most of the plane is gone. And they're obviously not in Bermuda. So the st- what the adventure there is, where are we? Can we get home? Who are all, you know, where are all the people? Why is the world the way it is? And who is hunting us? <laughs> and then they start to develop superhuman powers. So they, become, they become movers and shakers. And eventually they want answers. So they make their way from the edge of the world to the center of the world and get those answers. And in the my one Friday night game, they are 40 sessions in. That's the longest I've run any one game. They're probably going to go to 50-ish. Um, and they're about three quarters of the way through the story. Uh, and they've spent a lot of time doing side quests. Uh, so every time I run this, also the number of sessions gets longer. First time I ran it, it was 16 six-hour games. Then it was 24, roughly three to four-hour games. Then it was 36. And now we're at 40. <laughs> but they are loving it. Is this kind of a campaign framework or a setting or somewhat both? It can be. Like, for example, you could have your superhero team wander into this, this, this world and solve a problem and get back out. You could play natives who, through whatever reason, develop powers because there are a lot of native wonder workers. And you could do sort of that wuxi, Celtic myth, fantasy supers, exalted style adventures you can do the outsiders, you know, from, and you could do it, you could do a theme. Like I do a bunch of random people, but you could be like, hey, that transporter malfunctions. So six red shirts from Star Trek find themselves in a different universe and have to figure out how to get back. Or 
you know, or you could do Stargate. Yeah, we regularly, you know, make venture in there and we're trying to explore. It it depends on the, the framework and how you want to do it and how much you want to surprise the players and how much, because part of the, I think the part of the fun of any Isake Portal Fantasy story is the characters learning the world as the play, the players learning the world as the characters do. You know, they, they see, and of course, the fun of me is I know all the answers and I listen to their random you know, guesswork and all that. And every now and then I've handed somebody a resolve because they've gotten really close to the truth. And I'm just like, here, that was a pretty cool guess. I like that. You know, here, have a resolve. Mm-hmm. Um, and the world is not technolog- technologically advanced. So mm-hmm. you're going, you know, so the characters also get that culture shock of going from, it's like, I'm having to date myself. It's like the old Gilligan's Island song. Mm-hmm. No, no power, no electricity, no single luxury. So the characters also have to deal with being in a world where everything is, you know, handmade, muscle power, wind power, water power. And the idea that, you know, everything you take for granted isn't here anymore. And what do you do? And some of them want to try to improve the lot of the people around them. You know, first, uh, the prime directive. What's that? Um, Some severely misunderstand what's going on. It's like, no, they totally understand some of the things you're talking about, even if they express it different. Part of it is, you know, the mythology and legends and everything that you deal with. Um, Ringworld, by the way, was another huge influence. Uh, especially some of that. Yeah. Ringworld, in fact, had a lot of influences on some elements of how I put everything together. So, and then, of course, you start to learn that there's other people with powers. And sometimes you run into them. And sometimes you have to fight them. Uh, and what's interesting is, in some cases, the question of the use of violence comes up. Like, you know, I'm just a normal school teacher, and now I have to fight guys who want to hurt me, and I have to hurt them back. Granted, most players just roll with the, you know, we're adventurers now. <laughs> but if you really wanted to do that psychological deep dive, I guess you could. Uh, mm-hmm. But you are forced into the role of being protagonist, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see some people take the reins and run with it. Okay. And this is all, you, you've got this, and I don't remember if you said this before, we started recording. You had originally started working on this as Champions, but it's going to be released for Prowlers and Paragons. Yeah, originally it was a Champions. It was all done up for it. Well, okay, I won't say all. Originally it was a Champions campaign, and I had put a lot of I, some work into it, but not all of it. And then when I decided to convert it to PMP, I went pretty much dove, dove with both feet right into it. I have 160 somewhere between 150 and 175,000 words of content. And okay. I into roughly six products. There is the Well of the Worlds. I call it Well of the Worlds, Welcome to the Well, which is the core setting book. It breaks down the inhabitants, the anim- some of the animals, some of the plants, what the setting is like, some locations, some alterations of the core rules, which mainly are the gritty combat rules and some notes about how gear works. Here's some sample characters. Here's the villains and 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 the the, the meta plot foes. Um, here's a you know a bunch of other stuff. That's about sixty thousand words. Then I have a Wonder Workers book, which is sixty to seventy characters. Some of them full character sheets. Some of them little stat blocks, which are friends and foes and neutrals and other and other characters that you can interact with. And then I have an idea for an NPC book, which is Here's a description of everybody that gets mentioned somewhere, and it, there's no stat blocks, but there's notes about like you know because some of these characters don't need stat blocks. But here's a, here's an NPC gazetteer. Here's a places gazetteer. 
Here is a folklore book, which has all the origin stories and legends and myths and culture hero myths about characters and peoples. And then here is what I want to do is here is against the masters of the world. Here is a full X number and a whoever long it takes you to run adventure that'll let you experience like all these locations and places and give you a full, you know, beginning, middle and campaign that you can run. Cool. You said that that'll kick off April 4th, correct? Yeah. As far as I know, the only thing we're trying to kick right now is the core book. The rest of this we'll have to see because with blood and justice, the blood and justice book got released. And then the next follow-up book was Nocturne by night, which was the villains book. And then I, I know there might be other stuff. So, you know, I have to see how well we do and what happens and how much of this will be produced the first time and then what what we do with all the follow-ups. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them may end up being server press products where I just put it together and release it, you know, direct as a PDF and we're not gonna you know, we're not gonna worry mm-hmm. about printing and shipping books. But hopefully by next Genghis Khan or even Tacticon, we'll have some physical books for people to look at. Um, if you come out, if you're in Denver for either of those conventions. Yeah, I'm, I'm in Pittsburgh, so Denver's a little bit of a jump. But I used to have a job that let me fly from Baltimore. I lived in Columbia, Maryland. I'd fly from Baltimore out to Denver every February and, and, and come out. Because Genghis is a wonder. Well, it's, being re, it's been rebuilt back into a wonderful convention. But uh, mm-hmm. the biggest convention I know near Pittsburgh is Penzik Wars. Okay. Now that we actually have one, it's, it's, I want to say it's about his third or fourth year. It's called the Pittsburgh gaming expo. Oh, okay. We got asked to attend last year. I've since become friends with the organizers. It's a really cool little, and it's, it's multi gaming. Like there's a lot of video game stuff from like old arcade and pinball cabinets and platforms uh, and tabletop stuff and cosplay stuff. There's a, there's a convention in D.C. that started up just as I left that, that, that was like that. And by the way, the Pensac Wars is not really a convention. <laughs> I, um, that is the Society for Creative Anachronism. That's and what I was thinking it was. I went to like 10 or 12 of those. Yeah. But yeah, it was it's a cool little thing. And, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of getting their, their feet under them good. We had a real good show last year. Um, they've got the whole convention center this coming year instead of just the half of it they had last year. And as I tell people, if you're a real horror movie buff, it also happens to be across the parking lot from the mall where they filmed the original Dawn of the Dead. Okay. <laughs> like literally. Well, I, I know Mobius will come out with, if, if arrangements can be made because we don't have a lot of money either, uh, Mobius will try to, can, you know, is willing to come out to attend various conventions and to show off the product. It may not be me, maybe some other people. Cause I know they're going to Chupacabracon, which is in Austin. No, it's, San Ante- it's in Texas. Thundercon mm-hmm. will be at Tacticon. We'll be at, we always go to Genghis Khan because those are our local cons here in Denver. Dundra's mm-hmm. in California. Um, yeah. And there's some others that we're trying to make it out to. But I don't think anybody's in your area to come out and demo PMP, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like, like I said, if you ever want to sit in one of our sessions, uh, yeah, you, also, that. you also mentioned you have a, a Twitch stream going for this right now. Yeah, um, I would have to contact uh, the people who are. I'm, I'm, I'm just running it, and I can get you some URLs. I can get you some URL, some URLs. Wow, my age. I can get you some links to Mobius. Um, my whole section on Mobius is being rebuilt. I don't know. We're gonna. I don't know, but 
you know, also, if you want to see a lot of my stuff right now on DriveThru, just put in Serbrook. You'll see things that I've written or worked on that aren't PMB. Um, but I can get you, I, I want to get you the link to the backer kit so you can sign up to be alerted. I, can get, I need to get you the link. For, for our purposes tonight, I mean, you can email it all to me and I'll make sure I put it all in the show notes so any of the listeners want to check it out can just scroll down and click. Yeah, I toss some links out to everybody to some of my other gaming groups and I need to, I got, I got to find them again. Um, but yeah, the Twitch show was on its first episode. I told them this could be, this could go into the thirties and forties. So I don't know how long we're going to run it. I'm, I'm willing to <laughs> running it as long as they'll have me run it as long as they enjoy it. Uh, they do seem to be finding it a lot of fun. So well, there you go. Anything else? No, I was going to say, uh, before we start wrapping up, anything else you want to give a shout out to promote of your own work? Um, like I said, you know, if, if you're interested in seeing what I've worked on, you could go to drive through RPG and put in Serbrook S U R B R O O K. And you'll find a bunch of stuff that I've worked on. That's in PDF there, or you go to the hero games website and go to their store and do the same thing and you'll see everything i've done a lot of my independent champion stuff that i've done at server press is up there um, okay cool all of, this, if you, all of this is being revised too i got some good feedback on how to improve the layout so i'm working my way i'm gonna i'm gonna hold up a sheet of paper that only our host can see yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a lot wow. of stuff there but two sheet it, five columns wide or two well, sheets it's that's because there's a system there's a system list there. I mean, some of this stuff is actually for more than one system. I have I have a product on how to run medieval tournaments. That's for Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Uh, somebody converted it for me for 5e Hero and Savage Worlds. And I have Here Be Dragons, which is a medieval bestiary. And when I say medieval, I mean accurate, like not, you know, so I mean, it has things like the actual Basilisk, the actual Ketoblapis, the actual Lurkata. Uh, and island whales and stuff in it. And it's for like 5e Pathfinder Hero and Savage Worlds. But a lot of the stuff I'm going to be doing in the future, I'm going to do GM sourcebook uh, content. I'm going to be calling it the Professor's Guide to, and it'll be things like uh, the three products that I just completed. Uh, one is on money called Filthy Lucre. And it's all about how to do money systems for your fantasy games and get you off the gold standard and get you off the decimal standard. Because nobody in the middle ages used gold as their primary coin it was all silver and until the united states did did um 100 cents to the dollar nobody in europe used a decimal system so you got stuff like england which had quarter pennies half pennies pennies two pence six pence 12 pence and then 24 pennies was a shilling <laughs> and this, yeah. Uh, yeah and then it was 240 pennies to the pound uh, and they didn't convert the decimal until like 1971 Oh, wow. Yeah, it was it was crazy. All right. And then, yeah, and then uh, I'm still going to be, I'm going to be reducing independent Prowlers and Paragon stuff. I've got a couple things. i got to work about getting it, getting it uploaded or getting it to the people to go up on the drive-thru and such. But uh, basically keep watching the Prowlers and the Mobius World's publishing webpage. I know Server Press does not have a webpage, but uh, keep watching that. And you'll see my stuff as I get it completed and out. Very, very cool. All right. So, Given uh, how long you've been playing games and, and some of the stuff you've talked about, I think you're particularly qualified to play our little Game of the Week segment. Game of the Week! Game of the Week! 
feel free to comment, you know, as I'm talking about what I'm talking about here. But uh, my game of the week this week is going to be a game that I found and I've not played this. Uh, I just happened to find it, but it seems like it's kind of a cool little light thing. If you just want the PDF, it's all of seven whole dollars. And it's a game called Save the Universe. And what it is, is a little 90-page PDF. It says, tyranny and cruelty have spread across the galaxy, and only you can stop it. And so it's a very narrative story-focused game where you just sort of make up characters and then go have adventures. You know, it's not intended for any, like, real hard sci-fi, but I, I think, based on what I'm reading, is it's kind of in, in, like we mentioned with the powered by the apocalypse, where you kind of creatively make your creatively communally make your party and then set off and see what happens and bounce back and forth. So it's a very collaborative, you know, story focused game, low prep, just do your thing. And like I said, it's called save the universe. Um, PDF will run you all of $7. Or if you want the, uh, print on demand soft cover, in black and white and the PDF, it'll set you back all of 10 bucks. Currently Uh regular price is 17. I don't know if it's on GM's day sale or which will be done by the time anyone hears this, but still seven bucks, 17 bucks can't go wrong. And I'm sure if nothing else, it can provide you inspiration for other things you want to do. So my turn. Yep. I'm going to mention three. Okay. Uh, because I'm very interested. I was very interested in all three of these. And I will have to skim because I can't give the level of detail you just did. But the three that I'm going to mention are Alien, which okay. I've been reading through. I read through the core books and I found it fascinating. I think it's a little, at times, it's a little too much for me. There's like stress markers and oxygen markers and ammo counters mm-hmm. and everything. But I think it does a wonderful job of capturing that that feel of stress of the, of the Alien movies. And mm-hmm. even if you don't play it, the source books, both the core source book and the, and the colonial marine source book are loaded with wonderful ideas and details and ships and gear and, and companies. So the, the next one is called death in space. Okay. Now death in space is another space. It's like firefly in the distance future where everything's even more run down. Um, okay. I, I couldn't hundred percent grok it. I, you know, like I, I read it. I'm like, I had mixed thoughts about it. The reason why I recommend it, though, is that if you, even if you just look at a PDF, it's from the same guys that make Markborg. Okay. Um, and Vassen and all that. Uh, Free League. It's actually another Free League game, just like Alien. Free League or, or Stockholm Cartel. They're affiliated, but they're not the same company. Right. Okay. But it's called, the, the thing is, though, is the graphic layout has always struck me. It is, the whole book is black paper with white text, and they use these vector drawings to show ships. And everything. So it gives you this really like level of despair feeling for it's the end of the universe. I mean, I have a hard time. Like, one of the problems I have is I don't know when it's supposed to take place. And it's, and, and I'm not, and it, it seems a little hard to understand exactly how you would run a campaign. But visually, just looking at it, very evocative. And then the other one is Mothership. And Mothership, I didn't get a chance to play it. I have massive hearing loss. And my ability to play in crowded RPG uh, convention rooms is not good. But I was so fascinated. I'm waiting for the big Kickstarter order to show up. And it strikes me as being less crunchy than Alien, but more accessible than than Death in Space. And personally, 
I've wondered if I could use it to run a more straight up non-horror because I would love to adapt the old traveler adventure and cut out all the boring parts, but turn it into a, like a cool mini series and run the traveler adventure and something similar, simpler than traveler and mothership looks to be very fast play and see if I can work with that. But I'm waiting to get like the big box set. But I think the three of those, when you look at uh, science fiction games that both, all three of which have a level of that horror aspect or just despair aspect to them. Um, I think all three are just fascinate me to one, on one level or another. Mm-hmm. Actually, you mentioned alien and I haven't picked it up. I almost did, but the guy who did a lot of the flavor writing for the alien series for free league is Andrew Gaska, who, if I'm not mistaken, one of his, either current or previous jobs was he was the actual keeper of, I don't know what the technical title is, but he was the keeper of what was canon for that universe. That Usually they call that a Bible. Yeah, but like that was what he, yeah, he was the official guy in charge of what was. That's a job I kind of would love to have. Like, you know, well, because um, they call it a, usually they call that a writer's Bible. Well, that's, that's the term I've heard that if you're, yeah. that, 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 that this is what they give. This is what you get when you're going to like what you, when you're going to write a novel in Star Trek or in Star Wars, or if you're going to write a screenplay. Well, screenplay sometimes I ignore it. But if you're if you're a contractor brought in to work on X IP, they'll give you the writers. But this is what you can and can't do. But mm-hmm. yeah, that is a heck of a job because Alien is splattered over a slew of books, a lot mm-hmm. of books, comics. There's movies. You know, yeah. I read. So I am old enough. I don't know how old you are, but I was 10 in 1970. I was 12 in 1979. And I remember walking into a Kmart and seeing an alien action figure in a box that was like 12 inches tall. Now I'd never seen the movie. I had no idea, but I was like, just totally like had no idea what this weird toy was from this movie that was apparently utterly terrifying. And one of the coolest things somebody said about the initial alien movie was how was much like Jaws, how brilliantly they didn't show you the monster. So, I mean, there were some shots where you kind of get an idea what it looked like. But what somebody said was you go to 1979, you go, you grab a guy who has just walked out of it, the movie, and you say, what did it look like? And he's going to be like, uh, it was big and black and steel teeth and tubes. Like, the fact that you couldn't tell exactly what it was made it that much more creepy and frightening. And it mm-hmm. was a brilliant thing that they did with that. Well, that's, one of the I things, mean, Lovecraft did that a lot. Well, yeah, Lovecraft, to get the idea that you couldn't understand what you were seeing, he only described things in broad strokes in that purple prose. There's a movie called The Host, or the Chinese, there's a Korean monster movie called The Host. And one of the things that's actually really amazing about that is that very quickly into the movie, they show you the monster in broad daylight because it's running across a park on a sunny day and you get to see exactly what it looks like. Now the CGI is pretty good. So it doesn't look like really dumb, but it also gives you an idea of just how creepy it is because you get to see it. It's one of the things why people complained about Godzilla 2014 was because they're like, I want to see more of the monster, but that was deliberate. Every time you got a good look at Godzilla, you pull the camera away. You got just enough to see it. And then he would pull it away. Granted, we all came to monster to Godzilla movies to watch monsters fight, so you kind of wanted a little more of that, which they gave us in the follow-ups. But it also though kept you wanting more, which is a role-playing technique too that you can do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, uh, 
you let the pl- you describe just enough and let the player fill in the rest. Because in horror games, nothing creeps a player out more than the player themselves. Exactly. Exactly. We could go on for two hours on this subject. We better call it soon. <laughs> yeah, and and as you were talking about the layout, uh, Death in Space. Yeah. I don't know are you, if you're that into the cyberpunk genre, but if you've seen, uh, again, this is from the same people who did Morkborg. It's called Cyborg. Mork, the, there was a, there was a, I don't know if it was the company, I guess. Well, there was a company rep or something like that at Genghis, and I did not see that. I know that Morkborg is like unreadable or just, I mean, so many people have joked that it's unreadable because of the way it's written, but I've never had a chance to actually look at it. It's very chaotically laid out. The, the, um, I can't think of the guy's name right now, but the guy who actually did the layout is a professional layout artist. Right. It's but deliberate. he intentionally broke all the rules. Right. Did you ever hear of a game called Hole? Yes. Human Occupied Land. White Wolf back in the 90s. Yeah, which was also unreadable because it was like written in handwriting and looked like it was written on like paper napkins because it was a deliberate layout choice to get you that, that, that dystopian post-apocalyptic feel. But uh, uh, the, yeah. the the same guy did the layout and everything for this game called Cyborg, okay, which is a very again it's kind of rules light, very gritty, slimy, fast paced cyberpunk game. But that the layout style and that to me is just so evocative. If you ever get it, you know, to look at it, it's it I'll just from an artistic standpoint, it's really cool. And that's actually I think one of the reasons I didn't back Mothership is because the Kickstarter was out for both of them at the same time. Oh. I'm like, uh, uh, which one? I'm like, eh, Cyborg wins out. Uh, okay. But yeah, no, Mothership is, is one of the ones that's been on my list for a while to uh, to check out. I would like to try it out. I have It's an interesting thing. I have a Monday night gaming group, and we've been talking about what to do once we finish Massive Darkness, which is just a board game. And... I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do after that. I, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't mind trying Mothership. I don't know if all the players would want to try it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I got a couple Kickstarters I'm waiting on. Uh, waiting on like half a dozen, I think. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, uh. so I got to tell you, the, the latest Kickstarter, I'm not sure it's going to Kickstarter or not, but the latest thing that I'm looking at um, is nothing to do with games, but um, Beehive Books is a, I'm, I live in a library. Uh, there's 3,550 3, books in this house, um, including gaming books, including graphic novel collections, including really expensive prestige press books. And one of the prestige presses I like is Beehive. And I want to get this book only for the art, if nothing else. But they got Mike Magnolia of Hellboy fame to do 50 illustrations for Pinocchio with the guy that wrote Lemony Snicket doing annotations to explain sort of like what you're reading. Because uh, I've seen this. I, I have a annotated Wind in the Willows where he like breaks down. And I have an annotated Hobbit where he like, oh, by the way, this passage was different or this guy is actually this and North Smith. And, I'm, and it's going to be a hundred bucks. And I have two of their books that are like this and they're totally worth it. I have uh, Algernon Blackwood's The Willows and Le Cafodo Hearn's Quite On and they're in a slipcase, full color, gorgeous. And the moment, and the moment they said Mike Magnolia doing the art, I'm like, I don't care if I don't even if I don't even read the story, a book of his art. Oh yeah, <laughs> I think it's going to Kickstarter. I don't know. I gotta I gotta check it out. They're talking about reserving it on the website for a hundred bucks. So I gotta see. I think it is going to Kickstarter. So I'll wait and see. Mm, but that sounds cool as hell. 
All right. Well, we've been jabbering away for a while here, and I'm sure we could keep on talking about all kinds of things. But uh, in the interest of everybody and everything, I think we'll wrap it up here. Steve and the other Steve, if, you, if the other Steve wants to have another talk where we just tangent between whatever, I'm, I'm more than willing to come back and, and discuss all sorts of stuff with you guys. Sounds really cool. Thank you very much for taking the time to come talk with us. Tell us about Prowlers and Paragons. Yeah. Well, the world's all this cool stuff. Sounds like a really, really cool supers game. I I know there's some people, some of my former players have told me it's one of the best things they've ever played through. And they, and, and some of them really like the setting. So there are some definite fans out there. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, I guess with all that, you know, for listeners of the show, if you want to check us out, you know, we're on Facebook, Twitter. Um, if you want to help support us on Patreon, you can do that. We have a drive through affiliate link that you can get to through show notes. We have a discord server where you can come chatter at us. Tell us how crazy you think we are, how many, too many tangents we go on, whatever you want to tell us or, you know, drop us an email again, links to all that's in the show notes. And uh, with all that, I'd like to remind everyone to be kind to each other and get out there and play some RPGs. Intro and outro music by the band 12 Noon. You can email us at meandsteverpg at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and RPGs. Find us on Facebook at Me and Steve RPG Podcast. On Discord at Me and Steve RPGs. And as always, all of these links are in the show notes. Thank you and be kind to one another. How much for the cigar? Cigar, 20 bucks, dog. You got to go down the street to the store and buy that.